0: The message you're listening to was recorded by Campus Outreach for the 2018 New Year's Conference. More information about New Year's Conference can be found at newyearsconference.com. Well, hey, we're going to go and get started. If, uh, if you're looking for the evangelism seminar, you made it to the right place. Um, before I get started, I'm going to introduce the testimony, so go ahead and welcome Lauren Jones. Waiting for Brandi, University where I'm on staff, and so she's going to share a short story about her own personal ministry whenever she was a college student. Thanks. You might have to hold her.
1: Oh, hold you? Okay. Hey, everyone. Um, so, just to start, I am not some master evangelist. Um, I've made several mistakes in ministry, um, but God has just been super gracious to me and super faithful with the girls um, that I've had the opportunity to share with. And so, I'm actually going to share a story from my last semester at Bradley University, Um, but this story starts actually at the summer before. Um, So, we went to Project, and our project is in Tennessee, Um, and there we talked about the hideous doctrine. Um, And I don't know if you guys know what that is, but basically, what it is is sharing what happens to people who don't love Jesus um, when they go to hell, and it's an explanation of what hell is like um and it's the first time i had heard that and i think I, i've come from a non-christian household my parents aren't christians my sister isn't a christian my friends aren't like christians at home And so it's just like whoa this I, I know they're going to hell but to really read about what this is like is just really heart-wrenching um and so in that moment we just started praying Um, for our next semesters, Um, and I actually came to know the Lord through my RA, and I became an RA so that I could shepherd girls and share the gospel with them as well. Um, And so I went back to Bradley fully making the plan to share the gospel with all 42 girls on my floor, and I wanted um, at least like two girls to come know the Lord if God was willing to do that, Um, and I would like to say that's what happened, but I, I shared with a lot of them, but not all 42. Um, And I started hanging out with a group of three of them, actually, just pretty consistently. And I think it looked a lot different um, than ministry had in the past, because in ministry past, I had just kind of pretended to be this perfect person. It's like I'm on and I'll spend time with you, but then when I'm off, I'll just kind of be myself. Like I won't be this perfect person because that's not who I am, I'm not perfect. I have my own inadequacies. Um, I've struggled with mental health, all these things. Um, And this was the first time ministry my last semester that I actually shared those with girls and just was really open about it. And it was sweet because that connected me with the girls that I was sharing with. It's like, they struggled with mental illness, they struggled um, with just submission. And so I think that was really sweet. And eventually we just created this friendship that was really fun. It's like we just went to the movies together. We went to a Chinese tea tasting. It's like we just did random things and became friends and just loved each other really well. Um, And I think that eventually led to me just getting to share my life with them. like I am a believer of Jesus. And so I read my Bible, I pray. Um, and so I'm just showing them my life and what that looks like. And they wanted to see more of my life, so they moved into my dorm room um, the last month and a half and slept on my floor. Like they made a giant pallet and just slept on my floor for a month and a half. Um, but it was cool because we got to pray together before I went to sleep and got to read Bibles together. Um, and actually on December 5th, last year, they both professed Christ. Um, and it was just so sweet, because now um, I left for six months. And I was kind of nervous because, like, wow, I graduated. I'm going to go overseas for a little bit. Um, but the Lord just totally had them. And one of the girls is ministering on the floor that she became a Christian. And the other is an RA. And she's ministering the girls that are on her floor. And so <coughs> evangelism is hard. It's messy. It's radical. Um, but it's worth it. And so now I'm going to introduce the master of
0: evangelism, anyways. Wow, I've never been called that before, so it's kind of nice to hear that for the first time. If you guys want to start referring to me to that from now on, it would be great. Uh, I'll put this over here. Well hey, uh, uh, the subtitle for today's message is Transform Your Campus and You Can Transform the World. And so I want to start by answering a question. uh, Who are the people on your campus that God is using to, to transform the culture of your campus. Uh, who are the Christians, the leaders in your ministry or maybe in your hometown church that you would say, man, God's really using them and he is changing the culture all around us. And I want to start with that just to kind of take a step back and acknowledge uh, some of those people, uh, you, you probably have no idea who they are because it's some of the least likely candidates. people that you're looking around the room you're thinking man never that guy never that girl that those are actually the people that God's gonna use and so uh, quick story just from one of those guys that kind of came up through our ministry (laughs) you know I've heard whenever you do a seminar like this you're never supposed to share an embarrassing story about yourself because these things are gonna get posted on the internet and so I've opted to share a story embarrassing story of someone else so uh, some of you guys know uh, CJ Snyder he's on staff with us now in, in Illinois uh, and, he, and he's one of our best. Like this dude, he's killing it on campus. But I knew CJ whenever he was a freshman. And the reason I chose his story is because CJ actually didn't even start on a campus outreach campus. Uh, he was on a, a neighboring campus that was just kind of an hour or so away, and he had some friends in the ministry. And so CJ, he really was the tip of the spear. He was that guy. There was nobody else there involved, no one else really trying to have personal ministry on campus, but CJ was. And so I was, I was gathering a bunch of people to go on this camping trip, and CJ, he would always just kind of tag along and he would bring his own little posse with him down for the retreats and whatnot. And so he showed up with like 10 or 15 dudes from his campus, and we had this camping trip. And uh, this is just to illustrate just how wild this guy is. Uh, but I, I didn't know CJ really well at that point, so I was still trying to get to know him. Uh, but it doesn't take long to figure out, CJ's just one of those wild hair kind of guys, like he, he's just crazy. And, uh, and so I, I knew that much about him, and so he comes up, he's like, hey, Kenny, what, what are we going to do to get all these guys wound up? He's like, we got to do something crazy. And uh, I'm, you know, I've kind of got a part of me as well that likes to get crazy every now and again as well. But I'm, I'm sitting around at this campfire looking around I'm like, dude, I'm the only adult here. Like, I'm, I'm the only responsible person, so I'm not actually going to fall through with this. I was like, but I got to kind of play along. I was like, CJ, I'll tell you what we're going to do we're going to get all these dudes and we're going to convince them to strip down naked and go streak across that field over there. And then you can like see the glow in his eye. Like he's just getting so pumped up. He's like, like he he wasn't expecting it from me, right? He's like, you're the staff guy. Like, what are you serious? And then, uh, so, so I'm like, yeah, dude, we're going to do this. So like, I'm trying to figure out how am I going to get myself out of this? Like CJ, he's the guy, he just kind of generates the crowd. It's like, dude, I'm already like, halfway deep in this thing. This is a major mistake. So we're like taking a walk of the long route around this field. And there's like this bathroom building kind of close to the parking lot. I mean, this is a state park. There's all kinds of people out there. I'm like, I'm an idiot. Like, what am I doing? And uh, so you know what it's like when you're trying to convince a crowd to do something. There's like that tipping point is either you're about to lose them or you're about to like get everybody to jump in with you. And I'm thinking, dude, we need to lose them right now. <laughs> and about that same moment I see this like black thing, like cloud, just fly through the air and I'm like turning around. And someone's jumped on my back. I'm like trying to get this dude off my back. And so, sure enough, I turn around and it's CJ and he's like riding me. And the dude's buck naked. <laughs> I'm like, get off of me, bro. Like, what are you doing? And uh, so, we're just going to end the story right there. I'll just let you use your imagination how the rest of that goes. Uh, but, but the point of that is simply to, to say this uh, you just have no idea who the people are in your ministry, in your community that God's going to use to do radical things. You know, CJ was that guy that I thought never in a million years are we ever going to be able to kind of like rally him in and get him to focus and actually do anything meaningful. It's like he's just always running around doing whatever. Uh, but, but CJ's just one of many. I look back and I think, you know, it's, it was the most introverted people in the crowd that I would have never thought in a million years is going to be that guy who led the star football quarterback to Christ. Or it was going to be that just kind of strange girl that you're like, man, she, she just doesn't fit in here. But then once her life began to be transformed by Christ, then radical things began to happen all around her. And so as you're looking at your community, and maybe as you're looking at yourself, I want to make one point, is is don't rule anybody out. Don't rule anyone out. Everyone is an equal candidate. But I also want to point out that everyone is participating in this process. Everyone. No one's exempt every single individual is either moving the kingdom forward or holding it back. Everyone's either helping or hurting God's kingdom from spreading. And So I want you to begin to ask yourself which one am I? Which one of those two people am I? And then to kind of step back a little bit further and kind of look around the community that you're involved in and ask which which one are we? What is the culture of my community? Are we just talking about mission, or are we actually doing mission? Are we advancing the kingdom? The trick with college ministry is culture changes so quickly. You can have it one minute and then lose it the next because you're always graduating seniors. You're always starting over. And so it's important that we would consistently be examining and looking. Do we have it? Are we really living radically for Jesus? So let's let's talk about just the idea of culture, just in general. I'm gonna give you just a basic definition of culture this should be on your outlines. Uh, real basic definition, but it's simply this, is we do what the community around us does. Uh, culture, it just kind of sweeps across a people group and people start doing things without even thinking about it because it's just kind of your culture. And so I wanted to share just a, a dumb illustration or example, uh, go ahead and throw the picture up there. How many of you own one of these hats? Uh, raise your hands. I wish we had a bigger crowd. I, I was Alright, there we go. So we're gonna pick on you for a little bit, okay? How many of you own a t-shirt or you've ever wanted to own one of these hats? Anybody? A couple more? Okay. Uh, well, just just think about this. Uh, so you got Yeti up there. Yeti's the label there. Why in the world is a cooler company all of a sudden like, that's the cool thing? You know, so, so for one guy in the crowd, he, you know, he raised his hand. For you, it's, it's Nike or it's Patagonia. You know, you just got that little label on the shirt. And people, the, th- the thing with culture is, is people end up spending gobs and gobs and gobs amount of money or time on things that really just don't make sense. Uh, you know, think about the actual Yeti cooler. Do you, guys, do you guys realize, you know, all the people who wish they had a Yeti hat, uh, the other thing that they won't tell you is they would never actually go and buy a Yeti cooler. This cooler, you know how much it costs? $400 for a cooler. Dude, just go to Walmart for 30 or $40 and you can get a pretty nice cooler. But people are out there spending $400 on coolers. You guys would never do that. You're poor college students, right? Uh, but there's people out there who are doing this and you just think, what in the world? Why would that ever happen? I would just say, it's culture. It's the power of culture. People just kind of get swept up with, with what's popular, with what everyone else is doing. And before you know it, you're spending all kinds of money. Uh, so it's your clothes. Or maybe it's the it's the next series on Netflix. You know, It's the way you're spending your time. It's, the, it's your language. It's the way you're talking. Uh, but what, what does all this have to do with evangelism? You guys came here to talk about evangelism. And, and what I want to do is just make a real clear point is that it's critical, critical for Christians to grasp how important it is to create an evangelistic culture in your Christian community. If you don't create an evangelistic culture, uh, then you'll never see God's hand move in a dramatic way. And so what I want to do is just share a quick story. Uh, don't, don't share the picture nope. yet. Um, but a quick story of a student named David. He came to the New Year's Conference in 1998. He came to the New Year's Conference his sophomore year as an atheist, uh, but he left as a Christian. And he went back to campus and began to share the gospel with all of his closest buddies in the fraternity. But about two years later, after he had been faithfully sharing the gospel and sharing the gospel, he had his first convert come to Christ. And so he began to disciple this guy and teach him how to pray and how to read the Bible. But he did another very important thing, and that was David began to share the gospel with this young disciple's best friends that were in the fraternity. And he began to continue to share the gospel and share the gospel to where he began to impact his young disciple simply just through his model just through his own example. And then through his disciple radical, things began to happen. David went and graduated. There was another guy that came and joined the same fraternity that was already a Christian. And the two of them got together and said, you know what? We're going to trust God that we'll be able to share the gospel with everyone in that fraternity. So about 100 or so members before we graduate. And so for those next three years, they began getting together and praying that the gospel begin to spread all throughout this fraternity. They would would even get together and schedule their weeks because they wanted to think about what's the most strategic way that we could use our hours day by day to get the gospel to as many people as possible. So sometimes it was over lunch in the cafeteria where all their fraternity brothers would gather. Sometimes it would be on a Friday night in the middle of a party while everyone else is getting drunk and they're just kind of over there in the corner because they're trying to use every hour that they can because they wanted to see the gospel spread like fire throughout the fraternity. Now, um, I've got a picture of, of these guys. They were in a, go ahead, they're in a, uh, Fiji is the name of the fraternity. David's the guy there in the middle. And, and I was actually, this is my story. I was, I was <laughs> David's first convert. Uh, so I'll let you decide which one of those uh, budding gentlemen there uh, was me. And uh, you can just use your own imagination. Uh, I may or may not be the, the guy that looks like a stoner there on the end. Um, but God got a hold of, of our lives and, and what many people would say when we look back on that, I believe that if you were there, you would have said, man, this was, this is was amazing. Like, this is awesome to see it happen. Uh, but, uh, but some people just said, man, this is, this is just a cult. And it's just gonna blow over and it's just, gonna, it's just gonna fade away. But where the story continues on is the gospel began to spread from our fraternity to three or four other fraternities on campus. And then into a couple other sororities on campus. And then their friends began to share the gospel with some of their buddies that were on the sports team. And other people would say, man, this was revival. The gospel began to spread all over campus, uh, but but the point of sharing the story is that I want to share the irony of David's story. You know, I look back on, on David. We, we call him DT, so I'm going to start calling him DT because that just feels more natural. <laughs> but the irony of DT's story is 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 DT was relatively immature. Uh, he he started a trend, an evangelistic culture despite his immaturity. Despite he had only been a Christian for about a year and a half. The second thing that was kind of ironic about his life is, is is he just wasn't the coolest dude in the fraternity. Of all the people that God could have chosen, I don't think people would have just come along and said, yeah, that guy right there. He wasn't the coolest guy in the fraternity. He was just kind of an average Joe. But that was where it started. And the third, the third irony about his story uh, was this. I lost my point here, Mm -hmm. is is that DT was alone. Uh, Before he came to Christ, there was no other Christians in the fraternity. You know, if there had been 10 or 15 in a a 100-member fraternity, you would think, okay, the gospel could really go places. But the irony of his story is God chose to use one man. And by the time Eric and I graduated, uh, we saw this major trust God for us happen. We were able to share the gospel with all hundred of those dudes over the course of those three years. Um, but it blows my mind looking back to think how quickly an evangelistic culture spread throughout our fraternity. And, and I've asked myself often, what was the key to DT's success? And I would say it is simply this, is he had the privilege of living inside of an evangelistic culture. You see in 1998, that was when campus Avery started at Tennessee Tech. And he was one of about 10 students, about 10 student leaders who were in the ministry. Uh, Tennessee Tech, they've got a huge ministry now, but at that time it was just getting started. There was hardly anybody there, but, but virtually all 10 of those students, they got it. And, and all of them, they, they made evangelism a part of their DNA. And so you could look and say, they had an evangelistic culture. And so the, the point that I wanted to make with that is this, is, is you need to look at your community and examine, do we, do we have this evangelistic culture or not? Uh, whether it be your, your college ministry or your church, because there is another option. You know, many other com- Christian communities, they have more of a, an in-reach mentality. And, and that is a good thing. Like, it is important that, that a Christian community would focus on the individuals growing and maturing. But I would say that that's just a good thing. What a great thing is, is, is to have both, that you would focus inwardly, but also outwardly. That you wouldn't just settle for your own personal development, but that you would always be thinking about how the gospel can can begin to uh, spread. And so I want to share just what I would say is a a sad thesis or a sad uh, observation, a sad reality. And it's simply this, is most Christians never get to live amongst an evangelistic culture. Most Christians never get that. If you have it on your campus, then you have no idea how big of a privilege that is. Now, after you graduate, you'll begin to realize that this just isn't all that common. If, if you don't have it, then you need to start thinking about how to get it. But it's just a reality that most Christians never get to live where evangelism is just kind of the norm. Uh, but you see, for me, that, that's exactly what it was. it was. It was after I came to Christ, it, it was just what I knew. DT was about, he was one of the few, few Christians that I actually knew, and whatever DT did, then I did it. And it, it was just the norm for me, but that's the power of culture, is when Christians look around and they just think, man, every Christian I know, they're out there sharing their faith, and that is, that is powerful. Now, if you don't have it, if you don't get the, at this moment, if you don't get the opportunity to live amongst an of culture, I wouldn't say that that excuses you. Jesus made it very clear. The, the commandment has already been given. He has issued the commandment. So it's not an excuse. You're still personally responsible. But but the point that I want to make is, is, but if you have it, it's just so much easier. Is when there's an evangelist culture all around you, it's so much easier. But if you don't have it, then, then you need to recognize you are not getting spurred on to share the gospel. And you just need to acknowledge that. That man, no one's really kicking me in the butt. No one's pushing me out there to go out and share the gospel. And so what I want to do is we're going to look at uh, a case study from the Bible, from the book of Acts, that I would say that this is the best evangelistic culture that there ever was. And so we're going to look at the first five chapters of the book of Acts grab my Bible. So you guys go ahead and turn there to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, and uh, what I want to do is try to summarize three observations that I would make of the very first church. Uh, right after Jesus ascended, the early church is getting established, and I would say that they have one of the most evangelistic cultures that, that you could ever see. And so just kind of summarize that. Uh, I'm going to share three images because I want these three marks, uh, these three marks of culture to stick in your mind, so you can go ahead and throw all three of those up there. Just go ahead and take a look at these, these three images. Uh, they don't need to make sense to you right now. I'm going to explain them one by one. Uh, but I want you to memorize these pictures. Let me come over here. I want you to memorize these pictures so that six weeks from now, whenever your spring semester gets started, you'll be able to remember the things that we talked about today and they'll stick with you. And if you forget this in a day or two, then it's, it's going to do you no good. And so I want to give you these three images so that it can just stick in your memory. Uh, but we're going to look at the first one. And it's, it's the picture of that huge bucket getting tipped over. Uh, but again, these are to represent three marks of an evangelistic culture. And the first is, is they function out of overflow. If you've got an evangelistic culture, then I would argue or I would guess that they function out of overflow. And so in, in Acts chapter 2, just to give you a picture of what their community is like, we got verse 47. So if you could flip to that verse, uh, you can read this with me. It says, and the Lord added to their number day by day, those who are being saved. Uh, so, so think about that. Uh, how many of you would like to be able to say that about your community? You know, everybody, every Christian wants this. The Lord added to their number day by day. You know, just imagine an average week on campus. It's not like, oh, we're trusting God for a person or two to come to Christ this month or this week. In this event, in this community, they're kind of looking around and it's like, man, that guy just came to Christ yesterday. And this person came to Christ today. Three days ago, that person came to Christ. Day by day, the Lord was adding to their numbers. This is what we all aspire for. This is what we all desire. And so when you find a community like that, you need to pay close attention and, think, and ask yourself, man, what kind of secret sauce do they have? Well, what are they pouring out on their community that's having such a dramatic impact? so we're going to look at this community and try to study it for the rest of our time and try to understand what what marked their community. And so let's read uh, Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42. Uh, We'll read these handful of verses together. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And So what I I see there in that passage, what's going on, is, is it's, it's saying not only day by day were are people being saved, but day by day people are gathering. Christians are gathering to be in fellowship and community. You know, I, I don't know what it's like on your campus, but at times the things that I see is, dude, we're lucky to see that guy maybe once a week, if that. Or you know, so maybe that's you. But but, but the observation that we make of these guys is there's a, there's a kind of one to one ratio. As God is as they're being poured into then they're able to pour out to others. The more, I'm I'm convinced that the more that you're being poured into, the more you're gonna be equipped to go and pour out. You know, that, that image, again, keep that image in your mind. You guys have been to the water park, right? You guys seen those huge buckets up on top of like the playground, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. My kids love these things. They can stand underneath that huge bucket for hours. I've seen grown men get out there, and you can just see the anticipation building in their eyes. It's like there it is. It's like it's getting filled up. It's getting filled up, and then all of a sudden that thing turns over and poosh. You know, the whole crowd's covered with water. And I, I want you to envision that as you're thinking, man. If I want to have this kind of impact uh, in my fraternity or in my dorm, then it's critical that I would be like that bucket that I would be getting poured into, and filled up, and filled up, and filled out, so that it becomes natural that I would just begin to overflow to others. And we see this. Uh, but, I, but again, I want to know, what's the secret sauce? But What were the apostles teaching? These people are getting together and they're hearing the preaching of God's word and saying that they're gathering for prayer. It says that they're gathering for fellowship. But what were the messages that the early church were hearing? Yeah, we don't know this exactly, but I would, I would bet all my savings account on it that what they were preaching is the sermons of Jesus Christ. You know, 99% guarantee that's what they're teaching, right? These are Jesus' 12 disciples who are leading the church. And now it's their turn to get up and preach the Sunday sermon or you know the daily sermon. What are they teaching? And I'm convinced that they're repeating the same things that they heard Jesus teach them now to the, the Christian community around. Them. So we're going to look at, at, at passes that Jesus uh, was teaching to the disciples. Uh, this is in Matthew chapter 6. And, and you know, you probably know this already, but Jesus also taught with illustrations, uh, the exact same reason. He wanted it to stick in people's minds, uh, but you'll see the connection here. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19, I've got these on the PowerPoint. It says, Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Man, doesn't that sound amazing? You have the opportunity to lay up treasures in heaven. Not to just lay up treasures in your bank account. Not to just lay up treasures on your resume. Jesus is saying, I am commanding you, lay up treasures in heaven. Lay up eternal treasures. And I think the 12 disciples got it. And so they were pressing into the minds of their people, of their Christian community, into the early church. And so they're saying, you know what we're going to do? We're going to get together. We're going to spend our money so that other people can hear the Bible. We're going to invest tons and tons of quantity of time because they were taking Jesus' teaching seriously. So speaking of culture, I want you to to ask yourself a hard question now. Is are you still in love with the world? Does the world's culture still have a hold of your heart? As long as you're in love with the things of the world, then you're not gonna be the person that's pouring out. But the more you're learning to let go of this world and the loves that you have of this world, those are the people that say, man, I'm gonna give it away. I'm gonna invest my life, my money, my time into eternity. You know, think about it. How are you going to come to the point where you believe that God can change your campus or even come to the point where you are walking by faith saying, God, I believe that you can change the world if you're not first convinced that God can change you. You have to be walking by faith believing that God can change those old habits, the old sin patterns, the old loves of your life. And I'm convinced the only way that's going to happen is those daily times that you're spending with Jesus, sitting alone before the throne of God, and letting him work on your soul day by day, day by day, to root the world out of you so that you would be this person that Jesus is speaking about. Um, There's an illustration on your outlines. We're actually just going to skip past it, so don't worry about that. Someone can teach it to you later. Um, As a young campus director at Tennessee Tech, after I graduated, I went on staff there at tennessee tech I, I took this principle seriously i remember thinking man uh we've got a decent sized ministry now and i want people going out uh but I, at that point in time i didn't feel like i was equipped to really compel them with my words to get up and teach them and urge them to go and share their faith i said but you know what i could do <laughs> i can get people in the bible and so we came off of my first new year's conference as, after i became campus director and i said man If this is true if if the more people get poured into the more they'll go and pour out and i want my students going out to the campus Then we're going to take this principle seriously and we're going to gather every friday night for a word feast for the next 12 weeks i don't don't know if word feast is like a common term in your ministry Uh, for us that was just like an extended bible study uh but but again like i'm talking dude we would get together for a word feast so we would gather for three or four hours and we would just dig into God's Word. And at the end of those 12 weeks, really at the end of that next year, I made two observations. And, and one was this, is it worked. <laughs> those following semesters, we had so much evangelism happening on campus. And I'm convinced it's, it's because of this overflow thing. This is our students, we were just pouring so much of the Bible into them that they were just so compelled, it was natural for them to go out and want to share their love for Christ with others. But the second observation that I made was this. You know, we had 70 or 80 people. It started out small, 20, and it grew week by week by week. By the 12th week, we were getting like 80 people to come together on a Friday night to study the Bible. But there was probably another 300 that never showed up. My second observation is there was people who made, all. Kinds of excuses. And so that, that leads me to your first action step on your outline. Uh, so I want to give you an action step and it's this. It should be on the outline it's or on the PowerPoint. Is to examine the competing loves in your life. What are the competing loves in your life? The things that feel like sacrifices. And so I'll, I'll try to clarify that. I think back at all the excuses that I heard why people wouldn't make time to be poured into. And, uh I'll summarize it like this is there's three three different people uh, the, the first one is I would say it was just this, the social guy he uh, was the guy that would say man, Friday night are you nuts like you want me to do what on a Friday night the, the social guy that would say dude I can't sacrifice my time where I just go and hang with my bros to come and study the Bible or, or it, was the, it was the girl that was like Friday night I'm like no I'm gonna go hang out with my boyfriend or, or the guy I'm gonna go hang out with my girlfriend. Or it's the guy who every Saturday night, you couldn't get some of my buddies to quit staying up till 2 a.m. on a Saturday night and then expect them to wake up and go to church the next Sunday morning. Uh, So a lot of excuses were just kind of like the social guy. Uh, The the second category of excuses, I would say, is just the the success-driven guy. Uh, This is the person on campus that would say, man, no, I can't give up an hour to come to your prayer meeting. I've got this test coming up, and I can't afford to give up one more hour to go and study for this test. Or this the success person would tend to say things like, man, I've got this internship lined up over the Christmas break. I can't come to your New Year's conference. Or I've got my internship over the summer break. I can't go on the summer project. But success is kind of that competing love that's causing these people to not take their own personal investment seriously. And the third was just hobbies. And I just think uh, I've done college ministry for the last 13 years. And and college students, man, some of the people who have tried to convince me, they're the busiest people in the world. Uh, I I have observed that that's just not true. Uh, You know, you kind of look into your lives and you begin to realize, like, where is all this time going? You know, it's hours of Netflix or video games. Or uh, for some guys, it was deer hunting. It's like, dude, I can't afford to go to your weekend retreat. It's like, man, I got to go deer hunting, or, you know, what, whatever fits into that category. You know, I want you to think about what is it. What are, this is just kind of my like catch-all. Like, what, what are the hobbies in your life that you say uh, I'm not willing to give those things up in order to take my own development seriously? Uh, but but I look back on DT's life and I think, man, I'm so thankful that that he didn't let those other competing gloves stop him. Uh, that he was willing to take his own development seriously. After DT became a Christian, he went to the New Year's conference in the next three years, and then his next four summers before he graduated, he invested on in four different summer projects before as a student. Now, I wanna make a disclaimer, I'm not saying that summer projects are like mandatory to become an evangelist, but, but I would say that, the, the, that it's no surprise that after people spend nine weeks of getting invested, and invested, invested, that they don't turn around then and begin to go and pour out to others. Okay, well, let's move on to the, the second mark. Uh, again, these are three different marks in an evangelistic culture. We talked about the first. Uh, now, the second is this, is when you begin to study the different individuals that are in that community, they often think to themselves, if not me, then who? If not me, then who? And so I've, I've got a picture just of a little candle and a little light there in a dark room uh, just to depict what I'm about to say. Uh, but we're actually just going to go straight into Matthew chapter 5. Now, I steal this from Jesus. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, this is on the PowerPoint again. Uh, Jesus is using this illustration of a light. He says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now remember who who the audience was here. I think the first audience was twelve uh, Jesus' twelve disciples. Uh, so you can almost hear them saying, like sitting around, being like, guys, like. Uh, you remember so they're, they're trying to start the early church Do you remember what Jesus said right he says you are the lie of the world he's like I get it now I get what Jesus was trying to tell us we're, we're, we're here in Jerusalem we're looking around there's nobody else it's just the small old group is us and Jesus is saying you are the lie of the world look around everyone else is full of darkness every direction you look you know, on your campus, you know, think about your fraternity Think about your dorm. What Jesus is saying, if the Christians who are the light of the world are not willing to go and dwell amongst the darkness, then what hope does the darkness have? You take away that one little light. You take DT away from that fraternity. And now now you're talking about darkness. You just take that one little light and you put it back in that dark room. And there's hope. Jesus' point is saying, you, 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 you are the light of the world. If you don't go and live amongst the darkness, what hope do they have? Jesus was that light. He came and dwelt amongst us. He gave us the model, and then he ascended to heaven. And now it's our turn. You are the light of the world. Let's go back and return to the book of Acts and read in chapter 4. Uh, we're going to read verses 13 through 20. So let's, let's read this together. Starting in verses 13, and, and you can you almost envision those guys saying it inside their minds. We're the light. We're the light. We've got to let it shine. Verse 13, chapter 4. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. So let, let's pause there for a moment. How many of you kind of say this about yourselves? You're thinking, gosh, like, who's going to listen to me? I'm, I'm just an average Joe. Like, I haven't had seminary training. I haven't been doing this evangelism thing for the last four years. I'm just a common, uneducated person. Well, that, that's who Jesus chose. Those are the people that Jesus selected to start the early church. And the, these are the guys that are spreading the gospel like nuts. So let, let's keep reading. Verse 14. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another. So imagine, that it's almost like there's a courtroom setting. There's, it's the leaders of the Jewish church that have brought in Peter and John, and they're they're basically giving them a slap on the wrist. They're like, guys, like cut this out. you got to quit telling the whole city about Jesus. Well, let's keep reading. Where is I at one verse? Uh, okay. Verse 16. Saying... What shall we do with these men? For that a noble sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. These guys have been busy, (laughs) and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may not spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. What are they going to do? What's the response? They got these guys breathing down their necks saying, Stop it. Quit telling people about Jesus. Has anyone ever done that to you? You you get the awkward stare across the the lunchroom table. Or you get somebody saying, I don't really like talking about that stuff. These guys had people basically yelling in their face, telling them, stop it. How did they respond? Verse 18. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. It's just simple math. You're the ones who have the light. You're the ones who have the gospel. Peter and John are saying, if we don't share it, then no one else will. We don't care that you're literally telling us to stop. We're going to go and do it anyways. Why? Because God's told us to do it. There's going to be people who try to stop you on your campus. I guarantee it. Uh, next action step. I want you to identify 10 new people that you could befriend in this spring. I'll, I'll explain why uh, in my next point. Uh, but in the meantime, over your Christmas break, literally, uh, you can write that down before the end of the New Year's conference. Think of those 10 names. And I want you to begin praying for these people, but more than that, meditating on their darkness. Just like Lauren was sharing the hideous doctrine, she was saying she was just gripped with the reality of hell. Gripped with the hopelessness of the other students on her dorm floor. And I want you to just begin meditating how they're in the darkness and that they need someone to bring the light to them. Okay? You see, it's, it's no different today than, than it was for the apostles. Uh, so let's let's take a lesson from the early church. Uh, one more lesson, though. We're going to look at the third mark of an evangelistic culture. Uh, summary of the last was simply this. is When people stop going out, when you guys stop going out and befriending the darkness, then, you, then evangelism just tends to get left by the wayside. If you don't even have friends with non-Christians, then, then you're probably not going to be out there sharing the gospel. Make certain that you continue to build friendships with the lost. All right, now the third. This is probably my favorite. So strap your seatbelts on as we're wrapping up here. Um, the third is this. In evangelistic culture, if you study the lives of those people, they, they tend to leave the results to God. They leave the results to God. So we've got our image there. Uh, hopefully you can see what's going on. you got this guy in court. And the lawyers brought him up on the stand to bear witness. We'll come back to that in a moment. Again, back back to Matthew. We're studying Jesus' sermons. We're looking for some images. And and Jesus used this image of a witness, like a witness in court. Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. Jesus is preparing His disciples. He's having His D group, and He says, you know what's going to happen when you go out there and you start letting your light shine? They're going to beat you and drag you out of the city. This was His evangelism training. He's preparing them but, but think, is he leaving much room for any excuses? He's saying, man, they are going to beat you. Uh, you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Verse thir- uh, 23, when they persecute in one town, flee to the next, for truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Now imagine what the 12 disciples are saying. They're like, are you serious, Jesus. Go to the next town after they just got done beating me? Why would I do that? Are you crazy? What's the point of that? That doesn't sound very effective. They're not going to believe our message. They're going to beat us and run us out to one town. And you're saying, go to the next town. And then the next town, do it again and do it again and do it again. That's what it means to be a witness for the gospel. I think it's because we confuse what effective means. To be an effective witness does not necessarily mean that everyone gets saved. You heard it in Lauren's story. She said, you know, I shared the Gospel and I would love to tell you that all those girls on my floor got saved, but they didn't. And and I'm here to tell you that there are going to be many people that you're going to share the Gospel with that are never going to be saved, that are going to reject you, that are going to try to stop you, just like the 12 disciples. And Jesus is calling you to be a faithful witness. Uh, so let let's uh, let me share an illustration with you. Imagine that you're that witness in the courtroom. You've observed the crime, you observed a murder. You're the lawyer's key witness. In order to seal the deal, in order to win the jury over, he brings you up on the stand so that you would bear witness to what you have seen and heard. You understand the gravity, man. People's lives are at stake here. But you look at the jury and you start to get nervous. You're like, man, who am I? They're they're never going to believe me. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not good with my words. I don't have great and eloquent speech. I'll never be able to convince these guys. But then the lawyer calmly looks at you and reminds you, leave the jury to me. All I need you to do is open your mouths and tell them what you have seen and heard. Now, now what's the point of that illustration? It's simply this. is God is that lawyer, and you are the person that the lawyer that God is asking to bear witness. But we tend to reverse roles with God. We tend to convince ourselves, I've got to say it just right. I've got to say it so perfect. Make the best illustration. Help people understand the gospel so perfectly, and then they'll get it. No, that's not true. What is your job? Is to open your mouths and speak. Are you on your campus sharing the gospel? Or do you stop short? Do you slow down? Because you begin to second guess your skills and your abilities whenever they don't respond. Or they don't believe your message. Now, uh, we'll return to Acts chapter 5 uh, to kind of wind down here. And I want, I want you to see how the story ends. You're seeing the Gospels going out all over Jerusalem. The leaders of the Jewish church have already brought Peter and John in and slapped their wrist once and told them to cut that out. But now now we're going to look at chapter 5 to see, okay, so where where does the story go next? Verse 27 of Acts chapter 5. You'll see the, the apostles using this term witness again. Verse 27. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them this time, saying, last time, guys, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet, here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood, Jesus' blood, upon us. Basically saying, did you not get it? What happened, guys? Didn't we make ourselves clear? Now we're having to bring you in a second time to tell you to cut it out, to stop? Verse 28, or excuse me, 29. But Peter... And the other apostles answered, Again, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are the witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Now jump jump to the very last verse of the chapter. So so what are they gonna do? They brought them in a second time, they've commanded them to stop. This thing's getting pretty serious. Imagine you're in their shoes and, and they've gathered this whole council to try to get you to quit sharing the gospel on your campus. Did they do it? Did they stop? Verse 42 And every day, just like we saw in chapter two, and every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Christ. We said it earlier. Everybody wants 42. Everybody wants 42. We all want to see the gospel go all over our campus, but nobody wants verse 40. Look back at verse 40. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. This is what it cost the apostles. Even after they, were, even after they got beaten, they still went out and continued to proclaim and proclaim and proclaim and so your action step is this. Not only go and befriend those ten new people, I want you to share the gospel with all ten of those new friends of yours in the spring. Now, uh, why why ten? Because what I've seen uh, as I've discipled guys over the years is this is they'll go out and they'll share the gospel with the first person and then get rejected. And and it kind of just knocks them off the rocker and they, they just throw in the towel and give up. Uh, but but how do you know it's not number 10? It's not number 10 that's going to get saved. You might have to go through number two, number three, number four and so on until you get to the person that God has chosen. and you'll, you'll never find those people that, that could receive the gospel if you quit after number one or two or three. So don't narrow down, don't give up. So in conclusion, I, I just simply want to say this is we've been asking this question, is our community, do we have an evangelistic culture? If the answer is no, then then you've only got one option is this, is you need to be a culture starter. If the answer in your community is no, then you have got to be the tip of the spear. Go and be the DT. Go and be the Peter and John. You start the culture in your community. If you already have that kind of culture, then I would urge you to find a model. I had the privilege of following DT around for about a year and a half. Find someone, get in their back pocket, watch their life, observe them do it, and I guarantee you'll become an evangelist. Thank you for listening to this message from Campus Outreach. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without written permission from Campus Outreach. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at NewYearsConference.com.